I'm Heather McElhatton. Join me on A Beautiful World this week when we talk to polar explorer Anne Bancroft, first woman to reach the North Pole. That's what we experienced at this apex at the top of the world where all the lines of longitude come together that connect all human beings. We didn't expect to feel connected to humanity in that isolation, but we did. We'll also talk to author Alexander Chi about the Amtrak Writers' Residency and to travel guru Rudy Maxa about his philosophy on why travel is essential for everyone. It makes your, your life and your community better because everyone has that stone in their shoe, the neighbor who never mows his or her lawn, the guy in the office, the woman in the office who drives everybody crazy. When you get out and you take a larger view of the world, that annoying thing or person, whatever it is, becomes smaller. It's all coming up next on A Beautiful World. This is A Beautiful World. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. This week we're looking at exploration, expedition, and the hunt for treasure, which means something different to everybody. For some people, treasure is a secluded location or uncharted territory. For me growing up, treasure meant finding sea glass on the shores of Lake Superior. So what's your treasure? What are you after? The stories we're going to hear today are about exploration, expedition, and searching for treasure, from the obvious to the obscure, from the minuscule to the magnificent. And in our first story, the obvious. cancer, I, I told myself, you know, I've had it, I've had such a good life. I'm 83 years old now. You know, I said, why don't I give somebody else the same opportunity that I've had? That's Forrest Fenn. He's an 83-year-old millionaire living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he's a lifelong treasure hunter, sort of a modern-day Indiana Jones. He's the kind of guy that goes all over the world searching for treasures, which he then sells. So when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he decided that before he left, he wanted to leave something behind for other people so that they could experience what he's been experiencing his whole life, adventure, mystery, and intrigue. So he says that he's bought a treasure chest and he's filled it with some of his favorite artifacts from his own collection. And he's hidden it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. It's out there right now waiting for someone to find it. And I asked him what exactly he put inside. There's hundreds of gold nuggets. Two of them are larger than a chicken egg. And there are 265 gold coins, mostly eagles and American double eagles. But there are hundreds of rubies and diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and and jade and different carved ancient Chinese carved jade figures. And I think when they lift that lid and look at that, their hand is going to go to their mouth and they'll say, oh, my God, and, and, and I, I, I know that they're going to start laughing if they don't faint. And how is somebody supposed to find this hidden treasure? Well, Fenn says that he's left us a clue. In fact, he's left us nine clues, which he put into a poem that he wrote. A poem that he says, if you follow the clues, you'll find the treasure. Here's the poem now, read to you by NPR reporter Dan Olson. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down, your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, and take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. 
So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. Fenn says that he's received over 36,000 letters and emails from people who have unsuccessfully looked for his treasure. But that doesn't bother him. In fact, he says that he's prepared for nobody to ever find it and that that's okay. Because one thing that he's learned is that no matter what treasure you find on this earth, you can't take it with you. As I get older, I keep reminding myself that the most important thing in life, really, when you boil everything down, is contentment. If you're contented, then everything else has fallen in life. And you have to have a beautiful world if you're contented. And I think everybody alive today should use that word as, as, as their goal. If you, if you can eventually end up being contented, then I don't know what's better than that. Rudy Maxa hosts one of the nation's largest travel shows. He's a veteran traveler and a Pulitzer Prize nominee. He's been everywhere. And his idea of a treasure and what he hunts for is always on the horizon. So I wanted to know one of Rudy Maxa's most treasured places. Some place you discover later in life that surprises you. Um, you, you know, I grew up a, a, quite a few, I spent most of my childhood in Europe because my dad was in the Army and he was stationed two times in Europe. And I got, we traveled every weekend uh, on car trips and so on. We traveled all around Europe and I lived forever on the East Coast and it was easy to get over to Europe. I didn't get to Asia until I was about 34 and I was just so blown away by it. Now, I think, and I called my father, the colonel, I said, how come we never came to Asia? He said, oh, you know, I fought in Korea, that was enough. Um, and, and I, but I'm convinced if, if he had been stationed in Asia, we traveled all around Asia, and I didn't get to Paris or London or Venice or you name it, Barcelona, until I was 34, I'd be totally Europe-file. So Asia is my, uh, my favorite. My, if somebody said, take a free ticket, where would you go? Although South America is coming on strong, but I don't know it well yet. Do you remember that you and I were in Alaska together? I do. And, and one of the first questions you asked me was, uh, what was it? It was um, my, my, my greatest adventure. But you wanted an adventure adventure, not... Well, no, no, I owe you an apology. Uh, you and I were in Alaska together shooting... Uh, no, Homer, Alaska. Homer, Alaska. Yes. We were doing a savvy traveler, and I was the producer. Yes. And we took, we chartered one of those planes, mm -hmm. takes off in the water, flies up into the sky. Remember that? And starts circling over the glaciers. Wicker seats was like a vintage seaplane. Yeah, it was like you were sitting on the front porches of Vanna, Georgia, B&B. &B. Right. Well, so, so while we're over the glacier, I'm suddenly realizing the folly of this trip. I'm like, if we fall, there's just glaciers down there. You were very nervous, there. as I recall. I just started thinking, I have gum in my pocket. That's all I have. And then I started thinking, who are we going to eat first? That was the well, next. Well, I kill you for the gum first. Well, but see, that's what I'm trying to tell you is I thought, well, we need the pilot. We need Diana Nyad because she's stronger than all of us put together. That we're going to have to eat Rudy first. <laughs> well, it I would, just wanted to come clean about that. I'd take it as a favor because I don't want to spend eight days dying to, dying slowly on a glacier somewhere <laughs> outside Homer, Alaska. I didn't want to. You go. are voluntary barbecue. Okay, that's good to know. But my one, my one, my one adventure was in Alaska. I agreed to go on some press trip down the Stikeen River. I don't know why. This was when I wasn't even a travel writer yet. And, and we, we flew into Ketchikan on a nice Alaska Airlines jet. And then we took this little plane up the Stikeen River to this little town. I, I wrote it down. I didn't even remember. It was called Telegraph Creek. And as we got off this little, little one-engine plane, the guy said, don't, don't step. He said, don't step in any bear droppings. I'm a city boy. So you get, you get off the plane and you're warned to not I'm like already worried about bear droppings. <laughs> and I'm dressed in a blue blazer and a collared shirt and a nice pair of slacks and loafers. And the other journalists have done this before, so they're in like flannel shirts and big boots and jeans. But I was the only guy who, when we left the hotel, to get on this rubber raft in a freezing cold rain for 24 hours and go down this godforsaken river and have to sleep in tents. First time I ever slept in a tent, I was in my 30s. Pitiful. I have a Minnesota audience. This is very pitiful. Um... <laughs> I was the only guy who stole a box of Kleenex. You were the from guy the they were going to eat too. You, you, I'm they sorry? had already marked you as the guy they were going to eat first too. Oh, I was the wimp. I wrote, I wrote a Washington Post piece about it called "A Wimp Week in the Wi Wimp's Week in the Wild," and I had this box of Kleenex, and everybody, all these other guys, made fun of me. But after two days out in the wild with no toilet paper, you were the man. I was the man. I had the cool Kleenex. <laughs> Suddenly, everybody was like, you know, well, maybe could I just uh, borrow some? You know? <laughs> okay, so when you're People are asking you advice about how to take their dream trip. What kind of 
advice do you give people? You know, d- does intuition play a part in travel? You know, I think I think everybody has got a bucket list. Um, and and you know, I uh, I talked about you know we, you had, the first question was favorite place, and sometimes your hometown. Your hometown is never your favorite place. I spent forty years in Washington. I went up to the Washington Monument once because some cousin from Ohio came in and wanted to go up. I took my kids to the Smithsonian, I'll admit, but I didn't go as often as I want. Your hometown is never your hero. So you can travel in your hometown. You can travel in your mind. You go see you know, a Tom Cruise movie, and he's climbing up a skyscraper in Dubai. You're traveling. You're reading a novel set in Paris. You know? You're traveling. Um, so there are all kinds of ways to travel. Okay, but why is it important to explore the world? Why not just you know, sit home, be safe? Some people don't think it is. I, I do meet people. I... I I was one. I remember a woman visited me in Washington uh, with her daughter, who was a friend of a friend of mine, and because her daughter had won some kind of contest, a history contest, and uh, at high school here in, San, in, in, in White Bear Lake, and uh, I was driving with her, and I was, and she said, "You do, you write about travel?" I said, "Yes, yes, I do." And I was taking her and her daughter, and she said, "Well, you know, I, I really don't like traveling." I said, "So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to convert this woman." So I said, "What's your fa-? well, her favorite thing was eating. She loved food." I said, "What's your favorite pizza?" I said, well, have you ever thought of going to Naples and having a genuine Neapolitan pizza from where pizzas were invented? That does make me want to ask you, what's the weirdest thing you've eaten? Sheep's eyeball in the Wadi Rum, spelled rum, but it's Spencer Wam, Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan, and a Bedouin camp. It's an honor to give the eyeball to the guest. Ooh. How lucky is that? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you ate it. And you know what? It's the texture is exactly what you imagine. Ooh. <laughs> exactly what you imagine. Slick. But I think you travel because you understand other people. But as much as understanding other cultures, and now there are all these psychological studies coming out saying that folks who can speak two languages or try to speak a second language or who are, who are interested in other cultures, uh, it saves off Alzheimer's. It, uh, it, you make decisions faster in the workplace. You're more creative. But I also think it makes your, your life in your community better because everyone has that stone in their shoe, the neighbor who never mows his or her lawn, the guy in the office, the woman in the office who drives everybody crazy. When you get out and you take a larger view of the world, that annoying thing or person, whatever it is, becomes smaller. It's a big, wide, wonderful world. You can hear Rudy every weekend on Rudy Max's World, the country's most widely syndicated radio travel show. for a writer often involves searching for the perfect place to write. Some writers like action, some writers like solitude, but no matter what you're searching for, there's an exciting new option. Amtrak has just announced its first ever writer's residency. Author Alexander Chi is the unintentional creator of Amtrak's project. He's an author living in New York City, and he says he's always loved writing on trains. I've always found them to be a contemplative space, even when they are noisy, even when they are dirty, even when they are crowded, you know. For, for me, I do my best writing when I feel like I can vanish to myself, where I can get my ego out of the way, I can stop trying to perform all these identities for all these people that I know, and I can just be alone with the thing that I'm writing. She accidentally started the whole train rolling during a routine interview with Penn America. One of the questions was, where do you work best? And so I, I mentioned trains, and I, and then I threw in, I wish that Amtrak had writer's residency. And that sentence became the quote that Maude Newton tweeted when she tweeted the interview. And there started to be a kind of excitement about uh, about the idea on Twitter. So I, w- I was amused, and I thought, oh, it's great that that's happening, but I didn't really think anything else. Like, oh, maybe maybe Amtrak will actually, uh, will actually do this. And then their social media team, they responded, and they said, you know, we're always uh, interested in new ideas. Uh, you know, drop us a line. She did drop them a line, and a few months later, Amtrak announced its first official residency for writers. Chi says that it's been heartening for him to find a corporation interested in trying something new to help writers and artists create work. I think it's very easy to get cynical as a, as a writer or an artist. It's very easy to believe that the deck is stacked against you. So what's been great about it is to watch it happen like that. And I, I think 
you know, I'm, I'm happy to have gotten credit for having had the idea, but I would say that the credit is definitely a shared credit. It has happened because of the way in which the idea resonated with people and people got excited about it and then expressed that excitement. You know, that kind that it's a kind of a community victory in the in the end is the thing that uh, that I like. For more information on the Amtrak Writers Residency, visit Amtrak's blog at Amtrak.com. My idea of a beautiful world for writers would be one where people understand that the arts are essential to the way we live and not decorative. That there's a reason all, all cultures have stories and tell them it's because we need them. Train, train, coming on down the line. Well, it's bringing my baby cause she's mine all mine. Some people manage to incorporate expedition and adventure into their lives every day. I'm referring, of course, to the bike people. These are the people who bike to work every day, no matter what the weather is doing. And in Minnesota, the weather does a lot of crazy stuff. NPR reporter Matt Sepik biked to work every single day this winter, even in sub-zero temperatures. And you might have asked yourself, why would anyone do that? I moved to Minneapolis three winters ago, already a fairly regular bike commuter. But that first winter here was when the Metrodome collapsed under a foot and a half of snow. Biking in this mess didn't really seem possible, let alone a good idea. But I do like to stay reasonably vertical and in motion as much as I can. And not being a Minnesota native, I didn't grow up with all the winter activities on offer here. With an old house and two small kids, I already had plenty to keep me busy. Well, finally, December of 2013 rolls around, and I'll be damned if I'm going to sit inside, especially after a spring, summer, and fall of riding my bike 100 or more miles a week. The 12 miles from Minneapolis where I live to work here in St. Paul and back really add up quickly. So I set about getting the winter bike ready. Any cyclist in the Twin Cities will tell you having a salty is essential if you want to ride between December and March. You need to have a set of wheels that's the rough equivalent of a 1982 Chevette with 2x4s for bumpers. I mean a real heap of junk that you don't mind getting rusty because the road salt will make it look like something Robert Ballard found at the bottom of the North Atlantic with a remote-controlled submarine. Fortunately, I have such a rattle trap. It's an old Schwinn mountain bike that I decommissioned from regular service a few years ago. It already had fenders, an absolute necessity when there's slush, by the way. I just needed to put some studded tires on. These look like regular bike tires, just with tiny bits of carbide steel embedded in the treads that give you extra traction. On compacted snow, it's just like riding on concrete. Studded tires can get pretty expensive though, and I didn't want to spend 200 bucks on a bike that I don't even bother locking up, so I picked up a set on Craigslist. After I put those on, it was time to take the old jalopy out for a spin, and that meant bundling up. Everybody in Minnesota knows about dressing in layers, but with winter biking, you have to do it just right. Too few layers and you freeze, too many, and you're a roving humidor after pedaling a mile or so. There's all manner of technical outdoor clothing on the market that promises to wick away sweat and keep your body temperature perfectly regulated. But in keeping with my minimalist philosophy of cycling, a windbreaker, fleece, sweatshirt, and t-shirt work just fine, along with nylon pants and sweatpants. And, of course, thick socks and winter boots of balaclava and ski goggles for when it's really cold. Once you're up and moving, especially when there's a lot of snow on the ground, everything about winter in Minnesota comes at you all at once, Except, oddly enough, the cold. When you're adequately bundled, temperature usually isn't the problem. But the streets are narrow, you can't move very fast, and you often have to dodge ice ruts. Winter biking becomes really fun when the polar vortex hits, schools closed, and it's 18 degrees below zero. Why would anyone want to be out in this weather, let alone on a bike? Well, because it's peaceful. Other than the crunch of your tires and the odd car driving by, it's dead quiet. You can ride around the frozen streets and lakes and take in the city in a way you never could on a bustling day in July. And when you refuse to stay in on a day when only an idiot would go outside, you can explore the great outdoors all by yourself.
Coming up next, we'll hear a live performance from John Mark Nelson and listen to sound from around the world by the Marx Brothers. This is at the food market where the animated vendors were very, very interested in selling us fish that day. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media. Today on A Beautiful World, we're talking about exploration, expedition, and the search for treasure. Jonah and Jesse Marks like to travel all over the world together. They're brothers. And when they travel, they like to carry back artifacts, keepsakes, mementos from the places that they've seen. But what they bring back with them, it isn't your average kitschy keepsake. No T-shirts or souvenirs. In fact, their idea of treasure can't even be seen or touched. What they carry back is sound. The Marx Brothers run an online sound bank called thetouchofsound.com. Jesse is a sound engineer by day, and Jonah works at an investment firm. But their true love is travel and collecting sound for others to experience. Well, our first song we brought to you today is actually from Morocco. It uh, comes from the first trip Jesse and I did together. We were in southern Spain visiting a friend, and she suggested we go to Morocco. And we said yes. So uh, just like that, you just, just like used that. your intuition and decided to jump in a boat? Absolutely. Hopped on a boat and crossed the Strait of Gibraltar to Tangier. And at the time, we were not very well-traveled, and it might as well have been landing on the moon. So it was a different environment. Absolutely. Yeah, completely foreign. And when we arrived, we were immediately greeted by a gentleman who became our guide, whether we wanted it to happen or not. And he sort of luckily brought us to where we could exchange money and also brought us to a restaurant where we caught this first sound of the vibe and the music. Okay, let's listen. So describe to me what the restaurant was like. It was very colorful. Uh, the smells were just amazing. All the spices, the Middle Eastern spices. Yeah, it was a rainy day, so you kind of hear in the distance the motorbikes on the wet tires, and the food was great. All right, let's go to the next destination. Our next sound stop is going to be in Thailand. When we arrived in Bangkok, which was actually our first trip to Asia, we went to Lumpini Stadium, which is the largest uh, Muay Thai boxing arena in the city. And when we got there, the vibe was overwhelming. It was something straight out of a 1970s martial arts film. There was this band playing music as the fight, fight was happening, and there was guys much more interested in the gambling than they were on the <laughs> fight. Yeah, the slap of the hands, the yelling at each other, all about the betting. And Is that what crazy. I hear? I hear the shouting. Are they, are they shouting every time someone gets hit? Exactly, there's exactly. Some, it's a little of each. They're chanting at the fight, but there's the guys with the money were drawing much more attention. It was more about the money at that point than the match itself. Okay, let's listen. All right, let's go someplace totally different now. All right, yeah. Our next sound we brought actually takes us to the southeastern coast of Iceland, we took uh, the southern ring road from the capital Reykjavik to Jokarsalon, which is where... Uh, the largest glacier in Europe, Vadnajökull. That's the name of the glacier in Iceland. Correct. And it's, it's crashing into the North Atlantic Ocean, and it's created this lagoon with hundreds of thousands of icebergs. That's right. I've been there. They actually shot a James Bond film in this lagoon, right? It's got giant big uh, glaciers and icebergs that just uh, uh, float around in a turquoise lake. Incredible it's colors. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And it started forming less than 100 years ago, and they think it will be gone within 50 years. So it's this geographic snap of the fingers, and it's an amazing sight to be able to behold. Let's listen. Okay, let's zoom on. Where should we go next? All right, our next stop takes us to Turkey and the city of Izmir, which is on the uh, Aegean coast. It's uh, one of our favorite places in any city we go when we travel. It's always the marketplace. It's always lively, sort of the center of the uh, of, of city's existence. And this is at the food market where the animated vendors were very, very interested in selling us fish that day. Did you have a, a favorite food that day that you bought? Yes, I really enjoyed the uh, pomegranate juice. It was delicious. Yeah, it was very fresh and cheap. 
and it was such a great vibe and the the architecture was really unique to the 17th century Ottoman Empire. Oh, that sounds beautiful. So can you describe the market for me real quick, just what it looked like? Yeah, it was just kind of these long winding streets that just had all kinds of fish and seafood and cow parts and whatever you could imagine. cheese, olives. Delicious. All right, I, I think we have time for one more stop. Where should we go last? Yeah, let's uh, let's go to northern Australia, and we're going to take a visit to the oldest rainforest in the world. In fact, Daintree National Forest survived the last ice age. It's wow. over 300 million years old. What's the climate like here? Uh, tropical. It's Extremely hot, humid, and full of dangerous, dangerous animals. animals. I think they say there's... M- more animals that will kill you in that area of the world than anywhere else. It does seem to be what we've collected some of our, our diciest species. Absolutely. And it's not even just the big saltwater crocodiles. It's the little jellyfish that's the deadliest creature in all of Australia. Is this, and this is the surf that I hear on the edge of the rainforest? Correct. It is. And what's neat about this area is it's incredibly biodiverse when you take into context the aquatic species near the Great Barrier Reef in the area and the land species as well. All right, let's listen. That's so soothing. That's so different than the Muay Thai boxing room. Absolutely. It yeah. just shows the uh, variety that this world has to offer. You can listen to all of these recordings and hundreds more. You can even submit your own at the Marx Brothers website, thetouchofsound.com. In 1879, Thomas Edison first introduced the incandescent light bulb, and the era of modern lighting commenced. Since then, the world has most literally become ablaze with artificial light. Powerful streetlights illuminate our highways, our parking lots, our gas stations, our backyards, our billboards, often 24 hours a day. In fact, in most of the world's large urban centers, stargazing is something that happens only at a planetarium. Indeed, in 1994, when an earthquake knocked out the power in Los Angeles, many anxious residents called local emergency centers to report seeing a strange, giant, silvery cloud in the sky. What they were really seeing for the first time was the Milky Way. Darkness is something that many of us were brought up to fear. But that's not the case with Paul Bogard. When he was a boy, he would spend countless hours up at his family's cabin in northern Minnesota, gazing up at the stars, something that he says is increasingly hard to do. His new book is called The End of Night, and it chronicles our Earth's slow descent into brilliance. The book examines light pollution and what we can do about it. While some people's idea of treasure is all that glitters, Paul Bogard's idea of treasure is the dark. The most beautiful starry night I've ever seen was more than 20 years ago when I was backpacking through Europe as an 18-year-old high school graduate. I had traveled south from Spain into Morocco and from there south to the Atlas Mountains at the edge of the Sahara to a place where nomadic tribes came in from the desert to barter and trade, a place that when I look on a map I can no longer find. One night in a youth hostel that was more like a stable, I woke and walked out into a snowstorm. But it wasn't the snow I was used to in Minnesota or anywhere else I'd been. Standing bare chest to cool night, wearing flip-flops and shorts, I let a storm of stars swirl around me. I remember no light pollution. Heck, I remember no lights. But I remember the light around me, the sense of being lit by starlight, and that I could see the ground to which the stars seemed to be floating down. I saw the sky that night in three dimensions. The sky had depth, some stars seemingly close and some much farther away. The Milky Way so well defined it had what astronomers call structure, that sense of its twisting depths. I remember stars from one horizon to the other, stars stranger in their numbers than the wooden cart full of severed goat heads I'd seen that morning, or the poverty of the rag-clad children that afternoon, making a night sky so plush it still seems like a dream. So much was right about that night. It was a time of my life when I was every day experiencing something new. 
I felt open to everything, as though I were made of clay and the world was imprinting upon me its breathtaking beauty. Standing nearly naked under that Moroccan sky, skin against the air, the dark, the stars. The night pressed its impression, and my lifelong connection was sealed. Paul says that to truly appreciate the night sky, you have to stand underneath it in person, away from artificial lights. And he has some very simple ways that we can all help reduce light pollution, even tonight. One of the reasons that um, I love working with this issue is because it is something we can do something about. We don't have to use as much light as we use. We don't have to use light in the sort of uh, the unthoughtful, sort of irresponsible ways that we do, where we shine light in all directions and in, into the sky, in, into our eyes, into our neighbors' bedrooms. And one of the easiest fixes is to um, certainly to turn off the lights, but to shield the lights is, a, is just an easy one. So if you're a homeowner wanting to buy lights for your house, buy fixtures that are night sky friendly, that are shielded, that aren't shining in all directions. And if you're a community that's installing new lights, buy fixtures that are shielded, that are only shining light downward, not in any other direction. We don't need light in the sky. We don't need lights glaring into our eyes as we're driving along. And we certainly don't need light, you know, trespassing into our neighbors' houses. So by choosing our lights wisely, we'll begin to make a difference. And what does a beautiful world look like for somebody who loves the night? My idea of a beautiful world is the world that we have right now. It's so beautiful. It's so full of wonder. Um, But it can also be even more beautiful. It could be a world where, you know, people are aware of what we have and aware of what we're losing and what we will lose if we don't start to live differently. of the seeds I've sown and I know it's time to set a fire to this field and all these places so reminiscent of our mistakes and all that we should have done and in time the veil will be lifted from all I need and all
so reminiscent of our mistakes and all that we should have done. And in time, the veil will be lifted from all I need and all that I will become. That was John Mark Nelson singing his song, Reminisce. When we come back, we'll hear from polar explorer Anne Bancroft, first woman to reach the North Pole. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media. We've been talking about the hunt for treasure today on A Beautiful World, but treasure means something different for everyone. When I was a little girl, my idea of treasure was sea glass. You know, those smooth chunks of glass that wash up on shore. My father and I used to walk up and down the shores of Lake Superior looking for sea glass, frosted white, rich carnelian red. But it was the blue sea glass that I was after because the blue sea glass was always the hardest to find and smashed into the smallest pieces. And I like to wonder where they came from. You know, did the glass come from broken bottles or smashed up ships? Or maybe from the Model T Fords that my dad said had gone over in a storm once in the 1800s and were still down there driving around in the dark. My brother JT, he likes sea glass too. He likes anything to do with light and color. And he keeps his treasures in his crocodile Dundee vest. It's like a photographer's vest, one of those big khaki vests with all the pockets. And JT, he has Down syndrome. And wearing the vest helps him navigate the world. He puts his keys in one pocket, his asthma inhaler in another pocket. Bird feathers, rocks, notes, phone books, pens. He's always got everything. My mom likes to say she has one kid that turned out right. She's talking about JT. He never loses anything. He always knows right where his treasures are. When he was younger, he refused to take that vest off. He even wore it to my grandmother's funeral over the tuxedo that we convinced him to wear. But I can't blame him because it's one thing to find treasures. It's something else to figure out how to keep them. I kept my blue sea glass in a big mason jar at home. I had about 200 pieces, which might not sound like a lot, but it is. And I remember... There was a man selling black minnows by the side of the road who told me that the blue sea glass was actually the eyes of dead sailors that had turned to glass from crying, and that big, slow-eyed sturgeon would scoop them up from the bottom of the lake bed, and they'd swim them to shore so that children could find them. Maybe that's why I liked the blue sea glass so much. I liked thinking about all those sailor eyes back out in the light. When we were burying my grandmother, my mom handed JT a red rose and said, here, go put this on Nuni's coffin. And JT said, okay. And he carried the rose down. But rather than putting the rose on top of the coffin, he lifted the lid, chucked the flower in, and let the lid slam down hard and said, see ya in heaven, noons. Everybody froze. Nobody knew what to do. And then we all burst out laughing. We weren't the Kennedys, that's for sure. We went home that day, and I looked at that mason jar of blue sea glass, and I realized, you can't take it with you. And so later that summer, I took a rowboat out to the middle of the lake, and I dumped all my blue sea glass back into the water, because I knew the big sturgeon, they'd bring it back to shore. Bancroft is a living legend. She's a polar explorer and the first woman to reach both the North and South Pole. She was inducted into the National Woman's Hall of Fame in 1995, and she started her own foundation, the Anne Bancroft Foundation, which helps girls and women to realize their highest potential and dreams. And the first thing that I wanted to know is how did she get to be so fearless, so courageous, and so ready for adventure? You know, I've I've been really lucky, first and foremost, is that, you know, I came from a family that um, stepped out. 
And when my parents did that with us as little kids, it, it definitely was something that... Um, you mean like they took you places? They took us places. And, you know, places in Minnesota. And then in the mid-60s, we went off to East Africa. And we lived for two years. Oh. And what was it like being a little kid in East Africa? I mean, do you remember your first day? Yeah, I, I don't think we could land on the Nairobi airport because there were gir- giraffes on the air, you know, in the airfield. But you know, on the on the pavement down below, so the pain had to. I, I might I might be making that up, but um, <laughs> it's a really good story. And um, I, I think it's true. I think what happened with it's certainly with that trip, but but it can happen closer to home as well. Is when you when you venture out, um, whether that's in your neighborhood or beyond. Um, it changes your world. It rocks your world, and it it opens up your eyes, and you want to engage in that world, and you you see that things are bigger than than you. But what and it's you, really great. But what do you do about fear? Because I think that a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, no, we'd love to go, not be able to land the plane because of giraffes wandering around. But 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 there's a lot of fear. Things could go wrong, horribly wrong. How do you handle fear? Every expedition has these little flashes of these fearful moments, that physical fear that you have. So immediately what came to mind was, and I'm coming across Antarctica with this crazy Norwegian woman, Liv Arneson, and we're skiing and sailing, and there's crevasses everywhere. And... um, they're opening up, you know, some of them, crevasses are these abysses, and they're a mile or two deep. And if you've got a 250-pound sled behind you and you fall into one, you're, it, it's like an anchor, and you're gone. You know, you, there's no return. And so it was this amazing moment, and I'm sailing behind her, and as she goes across and breaks the snow bridge, it opens up this abyss, and I'm sailing behind her, and I do a, a sharp left or a sharp right or whatever with my sail. And you think, I'm going to die, but what can I do? So I keep on going. And in a way, it's, you get this gallows uh, sort of humor, and that's one way to deal with it. And then there's this other fear um, that happens way before you ever get to the crevasse, and that's that fear of failure. So you think of the idea of the adventure or the expedition, and then you think, oh, what if I don't do what I said I was going to do? Is that, that that's fear's, a bigger fear. That fear is bigger than the crevasse. Oh, it's way bigger, because you're not moving, and there's plenty of room to back out. <laughs> And maybe you should. <laughs> you told me a story once. I'll never forget it. That you were sleeping in a tent. Okay. Do you remember this? Yeah, story? I do. I know. Where Go, tell, you're going. tell tell us the story. Just start because it's well, incredible. In brief, uh, you know, we were up in the Arctic Ocean. The Arctic Ocean is a an amazing place to travel on um, because you're actually on ice most of the time. You hope, and underneath it is this this ocean that's filled with currents, and you know, think the forces of these currents are going this way and that way. And so uh, this crazy Norwegian and I are sitting there in our tent, and we're sleeping. It's and nighttime. You're asleep. Time to go to bed. Day to is over. Yeah, it's about 70 below, but we're trying to sleep. <laughs> and and leave, you know, she gives me the elbow, and we're about eight. We have like 18 layers of sleeping bags and clothes and hats and all of these things. And I feel this elbow, you know, in the side of my arm. And she says, did you hear that? And I go, hear what? I mean, I'm down in all this nylon. And I emerge and she goes, listen. And I unzip all my zippers and I listen. And I get out of my bag because I hear the sounds that were very reminiscent. This was 2005 but I'm harking back to, eight, to uh, 1986 when my... This sound reminded you of something. It, it was ringing bells. And I... And what, I, what was it? Well, it was the creaking, the popping. It was almost symphonic. It was musical. Um, and so I unzip the tent. I crawl out of my bag, which you don't want to do at 70 below. And I crawl out of my bag, and I unzip the door of the tent, and I look out... And our world is turning to water. It's going from ice to water. 
And, you know, you talk about intuition. I know you're going to ask that question, too. And and so I get back the in the... Was, oh, the ice was opening. And the, it was opening up, and, and things were separating. The currents were... It was a full moon, and the, and the currents were pulling the ice apart. And I come back to the bag, and I'm... I'm, my teeth are chattering so much, you know, I'm biting my lip and bleeding. And, uh, and Leave goes, what do you think? Should, what do you think we should do? And I had been there before, so she's looking at me, and I'm like, let's think about it. <laughs> so I go back into the bag because I'm, it's so cold. And I think for two seconds, and I can't stand it in that nylon. You can't hear anything. So I come back out of that nylon, and I listen, and I go, ah. And I go back out to the door, and I open the tent door, and I look out, and I go, time to go. And we, we didn't even put our boots on, and we struck camp. And we, we, couldn't, we didn't have time to, to move, to, to collapse our tent, so we, we pulled our tent with our sleds and all of our gear. And the moment she reached in the tent to grab the stove, and the stove is like your life link because it melts the ice for water. And without water, you can't live. And as she pulls the stove from the tent door, it turns to water. So the ice sinks. And we just go because there's nothing else to do. And again, sort of that, that sick humor comes into play. And as we're pulling the sleds in our tent, which we haven't even collapsed, it's just we're dragging behind us, and we've got this gun for polar bears on our hip, and we're, we start to hum, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to laugh, because where do you go? It's all ocean. <laughs> And, you know, it's like, okay, we'll go over to that ice now. <laughs> so, you know, there's that kind of fear. And then there's this other kind of fear. It was an amazing trip. It taught me so much. I mean, I even brought my journal from that time because it, it, it's, it's been such a guiding star. And I, I brought it, actually, because I think it really ties into so much of what you're talking about in, in a lot of different ways. But at the very end, we, so we traveled for 55 days to the top of the world. We toiled for about 10 to 14 hours per day, pushing and pulling these sleds with these dogs. We were eight, eight people, um, 49 dogs to begin with. We ended up as six people and 20 dogs. So, you know, there was an attrition rate. It was all, it was a good one. I mean, they all came back, but they just came back in a different way. <laughs> um, and what we, it, it was a life-changing experience for all of us. And so at the end, we sat down in the tent because it takes some days before a plane picks you up. And we tried to, first with ourselves, as, and we were a team of six people at that point, tried to articulate what this trip meant to us. And we knew, we knew enough in our isolation, and this is before internet, satellite phone, you know. I mean, we just were really out of communication. So it was really a lovely time, um, a time gone by. And, you know, it's really weird to say that in my lifetime, to have done enough of this in so many decades that I can say that what we did in 86 will never happen again. And I'm doing lots of other things, but they're different. And... Um, so, but we knew at that moment that we had like three minutes of fame kind of thing. And so we wanted to try and articulate uh, something about the meaning of this trip for us because we went to follow our own dreams, not for any other broader purpose, but it, it changed um, somewhere along the way on the ice. And this is part of that statement and, and how it changed us. The journey across the polar sea was filled with paradox surrounded by the gentle pastel beauty of the ice, snow, and low-lying sun. We endured the hardest work and most hostile conditions any of us have ever experienced. At times, there were tears of despair when obstacle after obstacle seemed to spell defeat. At times, we were overwhelmed by exhilaration as we made major breakthroughs. But most of the time, we just worked really hard, wrestling every mile of forward progress from the sea ice. We experienced pain, cold, hunger, and fatigue. For us, the significance of this is that we were better able to empathize with people all over the world for whom these daily experiences 
much of their lives and whom deserve the world's attention far more than we do. That's what we experienced at this apex at the top of the world where all the lines of longitude come together that connect all human beings. We didn't expect to feel connected to humanity in that isolation, but we did. And it was, it was profound, and it remains that way for me today. Okay, so as an explorer, mm-hmm. what is your idea of a beautiful world? You know, as an educator, I think, what I, I, you know, because I merge expeditions and education. My idea of a beautiful world is where we have a population of students from kindergarten to 80 or 90 uh, who are engaged and curious. They are explorers, whether they leave their their home or whether they venture far away, literally. Um, but they're curious. Um, they're, they're that kind of person that um, makes those connections, that understands that the world is a really beautiful place in all of its diversity, from its night sky to its beautiful 24 hours of sun, to the snow, you know, to the greenery. Um, you know, it's, it's where we find ourselves at the beginning that brings us back for the very first time because explorers always go away and we learn those lessons. But what do I have in my journal? I have a picture of green at home because I want to come home because that's where that lesson gets applied. It's full circle. If you'd like to find out more about Anne Bancroft and her many expeditions, visit the annebancroftfoundation.org. Thanks for coming along with us this week, searching for treasure all over the world. And whether your treasure is on top of a mountain or across a glacier, on a train, or in your own backyard, the one thing to remember is don't stop looking for it. I'd like to thank our special guests this week, Anne Bancroft, Rudy Maxa, Matt Sepik, the Marx Brothers, and singer-songwriter John Mark Nelson. That's all the time we have for A Beautiful World. I'd like to thank Joe Hastings for being on slide guitar and to Corey Shreppel, our recording engineer. Our producer is Jennifer Elise Larson. Our executive producer is Tim Reisler. Our creative director is Tony Bull. And our technical director is Eric Stromstad. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media.